All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is the introduction for episode 92. Uh, before I get started here, I will be mentioning that episode 93 will be driven by subscribers of Crow Triple Seven Radio.com submitting once again. We're going to do an episode of questions and topics from subscribers. That will be described a little bit more when I get Jason in here. Anyhow, we're going to be covering the idea of ancient Rome and how it kind of morphs into the Vatican and how unsatisfactorily the history and the founding of a place called ancient Rome uh, is handed us. So much of it, in my view, has to do with simple encoding of older ideas. After all, we're all familiar with the historical timeline we've been handed where we're told the Romans basically took everything Greek kept all the same ideas, renamed most of it, and in the modern age, the Roman renaming of most things, um, like planets or what we're told are supposed to be gods, uh, move up into the modern era. Uh, These are not gods at all in the way they're described, and if we would want to break down the idea of why would a supposed ancient empire get these ideas from a, a yet older civilization keep all the meaning and rename them, what you're looking at is aspects of nature. It is the same thing verbatim over and over. It is in the alchemical ideas. It is in the hermetic ideas. It is in uh, basically the entire basis of what Freemasonry is held on to. It's the same thing over and over and over. But as we jump in to the first hour, we're going to take apart from the founding, suppose founding of ancient Rome, we're going to get up through that Roman historical timeline we've been handed. In hour two, we're going to begin to try to attempt to show how it all morphs into the Vatican. Also in the first hour, we're going to take apart things like the supposed volcanic eruption of Pompeii, which in my view are nonsense. Uh, Near the end of the first hour, we talk about Hadrian's Wall, which was described when I was in school as one thing, but it is clearly not that thing at all. We cover these things, and I would, again, invite anyone to go look at the narrative of Pompeii with all these supposed mummified bodies that burn to death. Um, It's just all nonsense when you take a close look at it. Anyhow, uh, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren, and we've got a couple things to cover in the beginning. And again, episode 93, or the next episode, subscribers of Crow 777 Radio will be submitting questions and topics uh, for that episode. Anyhow, let's jump in. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 92. I have Jason Lindgren with me. We're going to talk a bit about Rome. Um, It's a heck of a thing when you dig into it. It's almost impossible to make heads nor tails out of the founding of Rome, the kind of switchover period when the Vatican becomes the big place in Rome. Um, And we'll even talk about, uh, you know, when when the Vatican forms up, uh, the date for that, and then hundreds of years later, actually, when Constantine supposedly makes Christianity the religion of the day. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning from kind of sort of warm Baton Rouge. <laughs> we're uh, we're actually having some pretty mild weather here. Anyhow, how's your signal? You got me good on Skype. I'm getting warnings. You're fine on my end. Okay, um, we'll go unless uh, unless this gets much worse, and then we'll uh, we'll try to reestablish. Anyhow, we got a, a few things we want to cover in the opening here. Um, first, I'd like to give a shout out to a YouTube channel again. Rob S. It is R-O-B, first name, second name, E-S-S. This is a living man out there standing up for the rights of a living man or living woman. He's quite an individual. He's an example to all of us. Go check out Rob S. on uh, YouTube and support him. Uh, Show him you're here. Show him you're watching what he is doing for the benefit of every living man and woman, in my view. Subscribe, support. What else do we have here, Jason? Well, yesterday we had uh, an odd situation with our friend Matt Landman. He messaged me out of the blue saying, hey, is my Facebook page down, not working? So I checked, and and indeed, they had just canceled it, just obliterated it. And I told him immediately, and I jumped on to put out the modern-day book-burning meme out there so that people can take that and spread that because... With what happened with you, I didn't want to be a repeat with Matt because he just posts constantly everywhere. I mean, he's the best activist I've ever seen, really, especially when it comes to the whole chemtrail thing. So we got on that, and within a few hours, it actually came back. Before I forget, he had a second account that he uh, he added me on, 
and then they deleted that too, but then his first one came back. So his second one's never come back. So we don't know. We don't know what actually was going on with all this. But as of right now, I just checked a little while ago. His account's still working. We were going to send out another video like we did for you, but we were just holding off to see what was up. So I don't know, man. A lot of people took it and spread it quickly. So maybe that made a difference. Hard to say. Well, when you told me uh, that they had taken him out in the modern-day book-burning meme, you know, you are looking at an individual who never stops. He covers chemtrails. I, I watched two people that cover the chemtrail thing. Matt Landman is one, and the other is Patrick Roddy, both of which have been on this uh, show. And um, it's a heck of a thing, some of the things they cover. I mean, they're, they're people who come and want to act like chemtrails aren't happening. They're just – they're not – educated about it. It's all there is. They've got the documents flat out that show um, the beginning, the planning of these things. But what's even more is recently, and I wondered if this played into them shutting him down. Um, and by the way, I posted immediately, and I know a lot of the people that follow me went to complain um, about the deletion of his Facebook account. But anyhow, to get back to the point, um, for so many years, the response we got from officialdom was chemtrails aren't happening. You guys are high. Uh, you conspiracy theory people are on crack. Uh, you're looking at contrails out of planes. Well, guess what? All those years of denial has now shifted to, um, and you can go to Patrick Roddy's channel or Matt Landman and see that the, the conversation has now actually shifted from we're not doing this to, yeah, we're doing this and we can't stop or we'll all die. Not even kidding you. So that's what's happened. Um, and, you know, anyone who lives in any major city goes outside and looks up on almost any given day. There are white lines all over the sky. But anyhow, Jason, uh, anything more you want to add on that before we move? People commenting when you when you put something up like we just did on Facebook. And here's the thing. We know that these are controlled organizations. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that, that they are. However, they are free advertisement. So for all the people that say things like, well, you need your own website, and blah, blah, yes, we do. But do you have any idea the cost if you wanted to have a YouTube of your own? I know you've looked into it, Crow, so you could probably give a better idea to people. But the cost is insane to have your own video hosting site. Even if multiple people went in on it, it's just, it's extremely expensive. So utilizing a tool like YouTube is to our benefit. As far as if you just want to get something out there with complete knowledge that they can screw you over anytime they want. Same thing with Facebook. It's easily the cheapest in-tune advertisement platform you can have if you want it. But... Just like what happened with Matt, at the click of a fingers, they can cut you off. So you just have to accept that. But I use it for exactly what I use it for, and that's to, to put the word out about things. Well, look, man, this is simple. Um, recently, I did look, and the video serving part of things is coming down. But the fact is, is if I was going to pay to have the same number and quality of videos I do on YouTube, I couldn't afford it. Very few people could. But let's get to, let's cut to the chase here. Um, these platforms will abuse people as long as people allow it. If the community comes together and they raise holy hell every time someone is stifled and free speech is cut off, um, let me tell you something. There will be a result from that. We saw it on my channel. This could well be what we see on Matt Landman's. But anyhow, I'm going to keep it moving forward here, Jason. Um, you and I had been talking for a while about doing another episode that's driven by subscription or subscriber questions and topics. So we're going to do that again for episode 93. Um, we've done these a few times before. I've even had some requests recently. So episode 93, the next episode, if you are a subscriber to Crow777radio.com, um, in the comments section under this episode, episode 92, submit your questions and topics, and we will cover those in the, in the next episode. Um, Jason, would you add anything? Hopefully you guys will throw us a lot of interesting stuff, but things we haven't covered before. So we've done a lot of topics since the last time we did this months ago. So let's have, let's have some interesting stuff to discuss. Almost every time I put out a call to the subscribers to do this, I, I get almost more topics and questions than we can get through. We've managed to get through them every time. Well, actually, the last time I think we had to bleed some over. We got so many, but there's usually a good turnout. Anyhow, we're here to talk about Rome, and it is a hell of a thing. It's one of these things where truly all roads do lead to Rome. So many facets of our modern life can be directly attributable to a supposed place called ancient Rome. Yet when you try to figure out when it started, how it started, how it 
morphed into the kind of the Vatican being the, the center power in Rome. It's almost impossible to do. But anyhow, you ready to jump in here, Jason? Yes. Not only are we doing Rome, but we're going to tie this in with the Catholic Church and the Vatican, what what Rome became. There is no doubt, first of all, before we even get into the ancient history stuff, that that's what happened. Rome morphed into the Catholic Church. And in my personal opinion, Rome never ended as an empire. It just transformed into a different sort of empire. Would, would you say it's something along those lines is what happened, Crow? Right. And I think we need to do our disclaimer once again. Um, history is, in fact, a lie agreed upon. And this, what we are going to cover here is case and point. What Jason's going to do is go through the timeline that has been inserted into the public consciousness and the history books. But for my money, the majority of what we're about to cover is actually encoding the sky, believe it or not. But I just want to get that in there. There is no I, I think there is no more case in point place we could look at for history being fabricated than Rome and what Rome has become and how it's bled into modern existence. Anyhow, over to you, man. April 21st, 753 B.C. is the mainstream historical year for the founding of Rome, being attributed to the mythology of two figures named Romulus and Remus, twin brothers. And this may be a later interpretation and this is what I think Crow and I both think, of the story of the twins in the Gemini story. Gemini is a zodiacal constellation representing the twin brothers Castor and Pollux. Both were mothered by Leda and were therefore brothers of Helen, but they had different fathers. In one night, Leda was made pregnant both by Jupiter in the form of a swan and by her husband, the king Tyndarus of Sparta. And this is where the twins are said to have come from, one immortal and one not. Although, of course, with all these things, there's variations of these stories. So in so many of the old accounts that we look at, um, we can begin to show that they're encoded to constellations in the sky, which in a way almost starts to look like we really don't know who the personages are. But if the events occurred, we, we could work out what time they occurred to some degree. Um, almost certainly, in my view, what you're looking at with the myth of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, and actually one of those guys being the first king of Rome, we are told, is the story of Gemini being re just reiterated in a different way. Not only that, later on we may get into the idea of the seven hills of Rome uh, being a geographical representation of the seven visible planets that drive all of the old natural encodings, um, the ideas from alchemy or whatever you would call it in a more ancient historical aspect. But anyhow, go ahead, man. Let's, uh, let's talk about the first king. In Roman mythology, Romulus and Remus are twin brothers whose story tells the events that led to the founding of the city of Rome and the Roman kingdom by the brother Romulus. Romulus and Remus were born in Alba Longa, one of the ancient Latin cities near the future site of Rome. Their mother, Rhea Silvia, was a vestal virgin and the daughter of the former king, Numitor, who had been displaced by his brother, Amulius. In some sources, Rhea Silvia conceived them when their father, the god Mars, visited her in a sacred grove dedicated to him. Through their mother, the twins were descended from Greek and Latin nobility. Seeing them as a possible threat to his rule, King Amulius ordered them to be killed, and they were abandoned on the bank of the Tiber River to die. They were saved by the god Tiberinus, father of the river, and survived with the care of others at the site of what would eventually become Rome. In the most well-known episode, the twins were suckled by a she-wolf in a cave now known as the Lupercal. Eventually, they were adopted by Faustulus, a shepherd. They grew up tending flocks, unaware of their true identities. Over time, their natural-born leadership abilities attracted a company of supporters from the community. When they were young adults, they became involved in a dispute between supporters of Numitor and Amulius. As a result, Remus was taken prisoner and brought to Alba Longa. Both his grandfather and the king suspected his true identity. Romulus, meanwhile, had organized an effort to free his brother and set out with help for the city. During this time, they learned of their past and joined forces with their grandfather to restore him to the throne. Amulius was killed and Numitor was reinstated as king of Alba. The twins set out to build a city of their own. After arriving back in the area of the Seven Hills, they disagreed about the hill upon which to build. Romulus preferred the Palatine Hill above the Lupercal. Remus preferred the Aventine Hill. 
When they could not resolve the dispute, they agreed to seek the gods' approval through a contest of augury. Remus first saw six auspicious birds, but soon afterward, Romulus saw twelve and claimed to have won divine approval. The new dispute furthered the contention between them. In the aftermath, Remus was killed either by Romulus or by one of his supporters. Romulus then went on to found the city of Rome, its institutions, government, military, and religious traditions. He reigned for many years as its first king. So, I mean, in this whole story, Jason, there are so many things that get echoed in supposed later mythologies and religious accounts and other things. Um, it starts with the mother being a Vestal Virgin. Um, anyone can look up what that's about. But I think one of the key points here is the idea of the god Mars uh, being involved, because that is where the idea of being martial or warlike comes from. And it begins to show that what we're looking here is mythology encoded to the sky. It's what it is. And even, even if we take it further down the line, the twins are left on the bank of the river Tiber. I mean, we hear this, this same idea in, in, the, uh, in the story of Moses. And then again, they go on in their shepherds. I mean, it is the same reoccurring themes all the way through this. But for me, when you have a brother named Romulus who gives his name to the founding of the city of Rome, how is it that all we have is a myth um, to to show the founding of this supposed thing that ends up affecting every life just about all the way up to the modern age. Um, it's a bit much, but at the end of the day, we can demonstrate that they are encoding um, to the sky, to the zodiac, to the planets. That's what's going on here. Well, what's interesting is, and I'm about to get into the seven kings of Rome, there is no, zero, absolutely nothing, no evidence whatsoever that the first king of Rome was this Romulus person or that that story was true in any way, shape, or form. It is just another part of Roman mythology. So I don't even know what to make of that because on record, supposedly, they have the rest of the first seven kings, as they call them. So it just is what it is. We don't know the real founding of it was. How can that be? So you have such a, I mean, is there anything in our history more major than the idea of ancient Rome? I mean, we're told they took over basically most of the world at one point. And up to this day, even forms of government here in the United States, like having a Senate, they have directly to do with these old stories. We have a place called ancient Rome. Um, It's a bit like, remember when we we did uh, George Washington? You know, everyone thinks George Washington. Washington is the first president of this country, and we looked into it, and there were a number of guys before him. For some reason, um, in this world we live in, we can't just have a standard account. Um, What we're looking at here is encoded ideas. For my part, I think a lot of it is is because the timeline's not as ancient as we've been told. And, you know, we always work to try to show this in some way, but it's not easy. Uh, but if the if the work we did on the chronology formed by the Jesuits and Fomenko's work is any indicator in reality, it pushes all of this stuff much, much closer to the modern era. Anyhow, let's jump into the Seven Kings. And again, the idea of Seven Kings is directly correspondable to the idea of the Seven Visible Planets, which is driving most stories of mythology and all ideas of anything astrological or alchemical or basically the the clock in the sky uh, as as controlled by nature from our point of view. Anyhow, Jason. And of course, the, the, the seven thing, that's a repeated meme through a lot of stuff. Seven chakras, the seven hills of Rome, the seven visible plants and all that sort of stuff. So... It was under these kings that the Roman ability to create an empire of some sort first became apparent, even though any intentions at the outset would not have been the intention. In all, there was said to have been seven kings of Rome, covering a period of over 200 years. The first king of Rome was the mythical Romulus, from 753 to 715 BC. To him is attributed the founding, the extension to four of the Roman hills, the Capitoline, the Aventine, Salian, and Chirinal, as well as the infamous rape of the Sabine women. The second king of Rome, Numa Pompilius, from 715 to 673 BC, owing to the influence of his advisor, the nymph and prophetess Egeria, enjoyed a peaceful reign. The third king, however, Tullius Hossatilius, 673 to 642 BC, was responsible for the destruction of Alba Longa and the removal of its inhabitants to Rome. With the literal destruction of this opponent, they took over the sacred festivals of Latium and all the regional prestige and status that came with it. 
The fourth king, Ansus Marcius, 642 to 617 BC, extended the city further, built the first bridge across the Tiber, and founded Ostia at the mouth of that river to serve Rome as a seaport. All evidence of the city's increasing power and, let's just say, warlike nature. Very Mars-like, right? Yep. The fifth king, Tarquinius Priscus, 617 to 579 BC, was an Etruscan, though how he secured his kingship is not known in the mainstream records. He continued the work of conquest, but found time to build the first sewer, the Cloaca Maxima, laid out the Circus Maximus, and began to erect on the Capitoline Hill a great temple to Jupiter. Another interesting thing about the sewers were they were called the system. The sixth king, Servius Tullius, from 579 to 535 BC, was a celebrated monarch of great achievements. He made the division of the people into tribes and classes, thus setting up a constitution in which wealth was the dominant consideration. Also, he is said to have enlarged the city by building a wall around it, five miles in circumference with 19 gates, embracing all the seven hills of Rome. He transferred the regional festival of Diana from Aricia to the Aventine Hill of Rome. Shortly afterwards, a massive temple, approximately 60 meters length and 50 width, begun by Tarquinius Persis, was dedicated on the Capitoline Hill to Jupiter. The seventh king, Tarquinius Superbus, 534 to 510 BC, is considered Rome's last. He continued with great vigor the work of extending the power of the city, and the founding of colonies by him was the beginning of Rome's path to what would be considered the domination of the world at the time. But on other matters, Tarquinius was less politically astute. He irritated the people by the burdens he placed upon them. And when his son Sextus outraged Lucretia, the wife of a prominent Roman, Tarquinius was exiled, the lead being taken by a rich citizen named Brutus, whose father's property he had seized. You know, whenever we go through these things, my biggest problem is this, Jason. So they're, you know, they can't tell you who the first guy is or how it actually been founded. And within the seven kings, there are guys they can't tell you anything about. But then all of a sudden you got guys building these monuments that will last supposedly for thousands of years up to the modern age by their accounts. Um, so here we already have this really advanced set of peoples that are able to build amazing things. And clearly, if you can build amazing things, you can write, you can read. Um, and yet we don't have anything near what we think we should to cover these ideas. It's almost like it's a complete manufactured backstory in my eyes. Um, but anyhow, I'm not sure where you're at on all that. It seems fishy that if they've got records for certain things, why they don't have it for the rest. I can kind of sort of understand why they don't have records for the first king, but then again, I don't, because if there's a second king on record, why did the second king not discuss the first king? So it's that kind of thing. No, it just it doesn't hold up for me um, because, you know, you're basically being told or the idea that's put in your mind by these accounts is there was all these tribes out living in huts somewhere. They start to put together the city and all of a sudden they're building the Circus Maximus. None of it logically works out. And it even gets worse as we get up to the point where St. Peter is founding the Vatican. Um, we'll get into that. You know, it's just after the year zero that he does that. Yet it's going to be hundreds of years before Constantine makes Christianity uh, the religion of the the realm so to speak but anyhow go ahead let's get back into the roman senate which of course you know the reason we have a senate in the united states is because of these ideas we're talking about that don't seem to have a legitimate beginning in historical accounts and bear in mind as we're going through things just how many similarities there are from rome the roman empire time and how it relates to the united states and especially washington dc it's striking. So many of the facets of government, just so many of the traditions even, uh, we'll get into it. And we'll even cover the, the fascies, which is, you know, the average person doesn't understand what the fascies represent. We're going to cover that in a minute. So the Roman Senate was a political institution in ancient Rome. It was one of the most enduring institutions in Roman history, being established in the first days of the city, which, as we discussed, is traditionally thought to be, have taken place in 753 B.C., it survived the overthrow of the kings in 509 BC, the fall of the Roman Republic in the first century BC, the division of the Roman Empire in 395 AD, the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD, and the barbarian rule of Rome in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. During the days of the kingdom, it was little more than an advisory council to the king. 
The last king of Rome, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, was overthrown following a coup d'etat led by Lucius Junius Brutus, who founded the Republic. During the early Republic, the Senate was politically weak, while the executive magistrates were quite powerful. Since the transition from monarchy to constitutional rule was most likely a gradual one, it took several generations before the Senate was able to assert itself over the executive magistrates. By the Middle Republic, the Senate had reached the apex of its Republican power. The late Republic saw a decline in the Senate's power, which began following the reforms of the tribunes Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. After the transition of the Republic into the Principate, the Senate lost much of its political power as well as its prestige. Following the constitutional reforms of the Emperor Diocletian, the Senate became politically irrelevant and never regained the power that it had once held. When the seat of government was transferred out of Rome, the Senate was reduced to a municipal body. This decline in status was reinforced when the Emperor Constantine the Great created an additional Senate in Constantinople. After the Western Roman Empire fell in 476, the Senate in the West functioned for a time under barbarian rule before being restored after the reconquest of much of the Roman Empire's territories during the reign of Justinian I. The Senate in Rome ultimately disappeared at some point after AD 603, the year in which the last known senator was mentioned in the records, although the title senator was still used well into the Middle Ages as a largely meaningless honorific. However, the Eastern Senate survived in Constantinople until the ancient institution finally vanished in that area circa the 14th century. So, Jason, are we going to cover, do you, do you have further down the line, the covering of the doors from the Senate building since we're talking so much about the Senate here? I found mixed information on that, on what happened to the Senate doors. There's there's one cathedral, well, it wasn't really a cathedral, like a, a church of some sort that supposedly had bronze doors like that. And then other ones say that the St. Peter's Basilica has it. So maybe there's more than one building that they're referring to in, in that regard. But either way, it seems that the doors from the ancient Senate were put on a Catholic church of some sort. So the the way I understand it is that the doors from the Senate building of ancient Rome, or what we call the Roman Empire, were taken. And by the way, let's let's get this perfectly straight. What what's the founding date that they list in in the records for Saint Peter uh, becoming the bishop of Rome, or basically the first pope? Uh, it's like forty six A.D. or something. 32 AD. Mm -hmm. So 32 AD, we have supposed St. Peter becoming the Bishop of Rome. There is a lesser, I don't know if you'd even call it a cathedral. Um, his main seat, his main religious edifice is, I think, after St. John. And the doors from the Senate of ancient Rome go over onto this building. This is a telling thing because we have accounts that the ancient Roman Empire is going to go up into like past the year 1000. And we're talking about the founding of the Bishop of Rome for the religious edifice we now call the Vatican in 32 AD. Um, there's these bizarre overlaps that don't seem to make any sense. Um, and the harder you look at it, the more confusing it gets. But how can it be that the doors from the Senate building end up on the first house of the Bishop of Rome or St. Peter? Um, and there's no connection there. For my money, there's many more reasons to believe there is an absolute connection, that they're in fact the same group of people just obscuring a history. But I'm I mean, come on, the Senate is where all the laws were made. And to top it off, what we haven't really covered since we've got into this is the people who were supposedly running the Senate were the upper class of Roman society. In other words, the, the plebes, the lower class, didn't have anything to do with the ruling of Rome, so to speak. It was always the the kind of semi-royal families that had to do with this. So the semi-royal families running the Senate uh, have these massive doors on the Senate building, which end up on the first religious edifice for St. Peter, which I believe had to do with St. John. This is before St. Peter's Cathedral. But anyhow, Jason, back to you. And it's just these sort of things that make me say that Rome never actually fell. It just transformed itself into a different power structure. You know, it almost appears to me that there's a backstory um, that covers uh, the true involvement of the Vatican uh, in terms of world control. Uh, I'm never satisfied with any of the accounts that we see for ancient Rome, and almost all of them can certainly be attributable to just being encoded to the sky, like so many religious stories that we get. Um, and in the case of Rome, Mars would be one of the, the chief 
you know, deities that has to do with the martial idea of war. But of course, even in the account you just read, one of the first things that we see is a temple to temple to Jupiter put up. Uh, most people think that this means they were worshiping a god called Jupiter, but that's really not what's going on here. It's about aspects of nature, which we covered in astrotheology and past alchemical um conversations that we've had. But anyhow, let's go ahead and keep pushing in, because to top it off, we're going to show um, a symbol that has made it all the way up into the modern age, into the United States governing bodies, that really has no no reason to be there uh, as, as gauged by the meaning of the symbol itself. So go ahead, Jason. Fasces, F-A-S-C-E-S is how you spell that if you want to look up more on this. The definition is a bound bundle of wooden rods, sometimes including an axe on top, with its blade emerging. The fasces had its origin in the Etruscan civilization and was passed on to ancient Rome, where it symbolized a magistrate's power and jurisdiction. The axe originally associated with the symbol, the labrys double-bitted axe, originally from Crete, is one of the oldest symbols of Greek civilization. To the Romans, it was known as a bipanis. Commonly, the symbol is associated with female divinities from prehistoric through historic times. The image has survived in the modern world as a representation of magisterial or collective power, law, and governance. The fasces frequently occurs as a charge in heraldry. It is present on an older design of the Mercury dime and behind the podium in the United States House of Representatives. It is used as the symbol of a number of Italian syndicalist groups, including the Union Sindicale Italiana, and it was the origin of the name of the National Fascist Party in Italy, from which the term fascism gets derived. So here we have it, Jason. You know, the fascists are in the House of Representatives, and the term fascist is actually derived from these old symbolic ideas. And to top it off, how much have we covered Mercury and the idea of alchemy and the misuse of the older ideas to transmute the world world mind? Uh, we have the Mercury dime, which again shows us the fascists. Um, it's a strange, strange thing that we have these symbols all the way up into modern governance, and when you've begin to look at where they came from, the words that have been derived from them, and what they mean, they would seemingly have no place in a supposed, and I say supposed, democracy. Uh, what's your take on it, Jason? Democracy is uh, loosely used at best. We're, we're actually a democratic republic, or supposed to be, but we all know that the power structure controls things behind the scenes. The fact that they're using symbols like this tells me everything. It's it's another one of those things that uh, Jordan Maxwell used to mention years and years ago that always stuck with me, that when I first heard him discussing that topic, I was like, there's your evidence that things are not what they seem. They, they put these things in plain sight, but you just don't know how to read them properly. I, I would agree 100%. I mean, let's reiterate here. So we have... Uh, this symbol, which gives us the word fascism, right in our House of Representatives. Um, the average American still to this point day doesn't understand that they play no role in picking the candidates, supposed candidates, that will go for the highest offices in these nations. And then the majority, or we are told the majority of people in this country, go out and vote for a president when their vote has nothing absolutely nothing to do with the seating of a president. That is done by the Electoral College. The Electoral College, anyone can look up, is a bit like an old boys club and on numerous occasions has sat presidents against what is called the popular vote. Meanwhile, the media is trying to skew the voting populace as much as it can to back the narrative that they're going to put forward. But at the end of the day, the person being sat is the person being sat, and it is completely independent of any kind of a democratic vote in, in this country, in the United States. And then, you know, take another look. We've got these fascists, the root of the idea for fascism. I would agree with Jordan Maxwell that things are not the way they appear. But the strange thing about it is it's not hard for people to know these things and to begin to question what the hell is going on here. And I would suggest that what is going on here is, in fact, all roads do lead to Rome. And the problem here is when we go back to look at Rome, the story we get is not satisfying or acceptable in my view. It seems to be mostly encoded ideas of older natural ideas is that have to do with astrology, to be blunt about it. And let me point out once again, as since you brought up the Electoral College, all the people still to this day freaking out over Donald Trump, 
it doesn't matter who you voted for, whether you voted for Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or Donald Trump. The Electoral College seated Donald Trump, so that is obviously who they wanted in place for whatever reason. Well, it, it was known in advance. South Park uh, pre-echoed the idea that Trump was going to take the election the week before he did. And you're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, if you go back and look at the records for presidents who have supposedly been seated against the popular vote, one of them is the ancestor of the people who run the, the show Pawn Stars on TV. So either wake up or don't. Um, if you can't see what's going on here, I don't think anyone explaining in careful detail what we're talking about here is going to help. The fact is, is we do not have democracy in the United States, and we have a direct link to ancient Rome in so many of the names, processes, parts of governance, and even the symbols in the case of the fascists that sit in the House of Representatives. There's no getting away from these things. So moving on in our timeline here, Rome's era as a monarchy ended in 509 BC with the overthrow of its seventh king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, whom ancient historians portrayed as cruel and tyrannical compared to his benevolent predecessors. A popular uprising was said to have arisen over the rape of a virtuous noblewoman, Lucretia, by the king's son. Whatever the cause, Rome turned from a monarchy into a republic, a word derived from res publica, or property of the people. This idea comes up over and over and over in the supposed history of Rome, how, well, we had kings, they were bad, they didn't work out, look at all these terrible things that happened, so we're going to the Senate and these other forms of government. And of course, as we get through this timeline, uh, it all comes to a head with Julius Caesar, uh, his last name actually becoming the moniker used to represent a dictator, an emperor, uh, his, his actual name, Caesar, uh, when he takes complete control um, you know, becomes the word for dictator, basically, emperor. And then after him, we have a line of Caesars. So in some ways, these old stories uh, begin to almost be like warnings <laughs> against the way places can be ruled or not ruled. And uh, of course, we have the story of Julius Caesar being killed, which we'll get to later, which is directly to do with the idea that the Republic has lost the people's the, the power of the people running things to this new dictator named Caesar who's come in. But anyhow, Jason. So the power of the monarch passed to two annually elected magistrates called consuls. They also served as commanders-in-chief of the army. The magistrates, though elected by the people, were drawn largely from the Senate, which was dominated by the patricians or the descendants of the original senators from the time of Romulus. Politics in the early Republic was marked by the long struggle between patricians and plebeians, plebeians being the common people, who eventually attained some political power through years of concessions from patricians, including their own political bodies, the tribunes, which could initiate or veto legislation. So, so many kind of comparisons to the way the United States is supposed to be governed here, where the the common class, the plebes in this case, actually are supposedly having some say to the semi-royal class called the patricians. But even in the way the United States government is set up, you know, here we're being told there are consuls. There could be co-consuls, too. There could be two consuls that rule at once. They're in charge of the military endeavors, which reflects exactly what the president uh, is saying to be in this country, uh, the commander in chief. And that means over the, the armies too. So you can see the parallel where the ideas are coming from. Um, in many ways, this bullet point is reflecting what the average person would kind of think the manner in which the United States is run. Although that's not true, you can see the roots of the ideas here. I would draw direct parallels to modern times with the mention of families and things like that contributing a lot to the politicians. Well, we have the same thing today. The Bush family is a very easy example to throw out there with them just cranking out repeatedly members of their family to have a lot to do with our government and what they're steering. We have our patricians, do we not? We have our Clintons, we have our Bushes, we have any number of families, Kennedys that we can look at. Uh, but for some reason, these special families uh, just recur over and over and over and over in political positions. The same could be said of the other arm of government in this country, Hollywood, where you can see the very same things, where these certain families, where their offspring reoccur in these important positions in Hollywood. And then, of course, in the military, to some degree, 
degree, you can see similar things with who the generals are, who their children are. It's not as obvious, but absolutely, Jason, we have our patrician class still. There's no getting away from it. In 450 BC, the first Roman law code was transcribed on 12 bronze tablets, known as the Twelve Tables, and publicly displayed in the Roman Forum. These laws included issues of legal procedure, civil rights, and property rights, and provided the basis for all future Roman civil law. By around 300 BC, real political power in Rome was centered in the Senate, which at the time included only members of patrician and wealthy plebeian families. Sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's almost like like they're making up a backstory for the way things are now. But what we are told is this is the roots of Western civilization. And um, you can draw the parallels all day long. And so here we see in supposed 450 BC, the idea of civil law coming to be. Um, all, all paths from the United States truly do lead back to these Roman ideas. Wealthy plebeian families in today's era could be, say, the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts or any of these people who started, you know, as nobodies, but somehow managed to accumulate these massive wealth. Well, mostly, usually you find out due to a lot of shenanigans, for instance, the Rockefellers selling snake oil and things like that. It, it sounds like the same crap over and over again, really. Well, it's absolutely about money. You know, years and years ago, uh, when I was much younger, I read a, I forget the lady's authorship, the author of the uh, the novels that recreate um, a Roman epic, starting with maybe Pompeii going all the way up to Augustus or something like that. It's a very popular set of books. But she recreates what history's picture is of Rome. And basically, the patricians have set themselves up to basically be the rulers, the more important class. But they have this idea where they set up shop every morning and all these people come in to see them. And that's how they generate cash. So into the system is built in and much the way you were pointing at the Rockefellers or Rothschilds or any of these other places, the very system in existence is generating coin for these patrician families to ensure that they remain wealthy, you know, ad infinitum. During the early Republic, the Roman state grew exponentially in both size and power. Though the Gauls sacked and burned Rome in 390 BC, the Romans rebounded under the leadership of the military hero Camillus, eventually gaining control of the entire Italian peninsula by 264 BC. Rome then fought a series of wars known as the Punic Wars with Carthage, a powerful city-state in northern Africa. The first two Punic Wars ended with Rome in full control of Sicily, the western Mediterranean, and much of Spain. In the Third Punic War, from 149 to 146 BC, the Romans captured and destroyed the city of Carthage and sold its surviving inhabitants into slavery, making a section of northern Africa a Roman province. At the same time, Rome also spread its influence east, defeating King Philip V of Macedonia in the Macedonian Wars and turning his kingdom into another Roman province. Rome's military conquests led directly to its cultural growth as a society, as the Romans benefited greatly from contact with such advanced cultures as the Greeks. The first Roman literature appeared around 240 BC with translations of Greek classics into Latin. Romans would eventually adopt much of Greek art, philosophy, and religion. All right. Well, here at the end, of course, they're pointing out that they're speaking Latin, which becomes the language of the Vatican, all religious scriptures being in Latin, uh, mostly because the priests were the only people who spoke it at that time, we are told. Uh, most of the common people did not speak Latin uh, at a certain given point, making it a requirement for a priest to be the intercessor between common people and God, um, because they're the only ones who could read the religious scriptures. But to get back, Jason, I, if I'm not mistaken, the Punic Wars is one of the places where we have written accounts of when solar eclipses and lunar eclipses happened, and this plays into the Fomenko work. Uh, it was one of the basis for him to state flat out that the dating of these events could not possibly have occurred, because it's not possible that the eclipses occurred in the time attributed to the historical war, um, and he used these things to again go back and try to figure out in history, in history when in fact these eclipses were possible, and it moves everything up many hundreds of years closer to us in many cases, and in some cases as much as a thousand years closer, uh, where we've said so many times that it could be that everything pushed up to the 1100s is a much uh, more accurate account of when these supposed ancient events occurred. These are tough things to know, but but people can go look at the work of Fomenko and decide for themselves. 
Rome's complex political institutions began to crumble under the weight of the growing empire, ushering in an era of internal turmoil and violence. The gap between rich and poor widened as wealthy landowners drove small farmers from public land, while access to government was increasingly limited to the more privileged classes. Attempts to address these social problems, such as the reform movements of Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, ended in the reformers' deaths at the hands of their opponents. Gaius Marius, a commoner whose military prowess elevated him to the position of consul for the first of six terms in 107 BC, was the first of a series of warlords who would dominate Rome during the late Republic. By 91 BC, Marius was struggling against attacks by his opponents, including his fellow general Sulla, who emerged as military dictator around 82 BC. After Sulla retired, one of his former supporters, Pompey, briefly served as consul before waging successful military campaigns against pirates in the Mediterranean and the forces of Mithridates in Asia. During the same period, Marcus Tullius Cicero, elected consul in 63 BC, famously defeated the conspiracy of the patrician Catiline and won a reputation as one of Rome's greatest orators. So here we are up, you know, we're getting close to the year zero here, and we have these famous personages like Pompey, Sulla, Cicero, um, and we have all these writings attributed to these people. Um, For my money, uh, if we're looking at a period in Roman history where we've got these great orators who are writing all this stuff, which are going to make it to the common age, why in the hell don't we have a better accounting of the formation of this whatever you want to call it, the civilization, Rome. As a matter of fact, I mentioned these, I don't know, I think it's 11 series novel that I read written by a lady's name who I don't recall at the moment, begins with Sulla um, in the era of Pompeii. And the account that she puts together is so detailed in recreating how, suppose, Romans live, what the historical dates were, what the wars were, who was involved in them. Again, I ask, if we have this information for Rome approaching the year zero or within 100 years of the year zero, how in the heck can it be that we don't have a better accounting of what came before? And I think that's a huge problem, and I think it's a huge tell that begins to show that we're looking at a fabricated backstory, which basically circles and centers around the Vatican. Anyhow, Jason. When the victorious Pompey returned to Rome, he formed an uneasy alliance known as the First Triumvirate with the wealthy Marcus Licinius Crassus, who suppressed a slave rebellion led by Spartacus in 71 BC, and another rising star in Roman politics, Gaius Julius Caesar. After earning military glory in Spain, Caesar returned to Rome to vie for the consulship in 59 BC. From his alliance with Pompey and Crassus, Caesar received the governorship of three wealthy provinces in Gaul beginning in 58 BC. He then set about conquering the rest of the region for Rome. After Pompey's wife Julia, Caesar's daughter, died in 54 BC and Crassus was killed in battle against Parthia, which is present-day Iran, the following year the triumvirate was broken. With old-style Roman politics in disorder, Pompey stepped in as sole consul in 53 BC. Caesar's military glory in Gaul and his increasing wealth had eclipsed Pompey's, and the latter teamed with his Senate allies to steadily undermine Caesar. In 49 BC, Caesar and one of his legions crossed the Rubicon, a river on the border between Italy from Cisalpine Gaul. Caesar's invasion of Italy ignited a civil war from which he emerged as dictator of Rome for life in 45 BC. So here is a portion of Roman history that we know so much about. We know all the players, supposedly. We know all the battles. We know what Caesar was doing in Gaul. So many of the battles that he had in Gaul, which I guess would be modern-day France, um, there are these whole stories about how he built these you know, basically fenced in his enemy in one way or another. There's accounts that you can look up right now. We even have in our modern language crossing the Rubicon as an old cliche, and this is what it's referring to. As a matter of fact, we're told, I think at least on three occasions, actually, I don't know if I have that right, um, that one of the big problems with Rome is, is they never learned how to keep their generals from taking armies to march on Rome and take it over. Well, here is the first accounting of that. And again, I would ask if we know so much about these people and their military victories all over the world, how is it that we don't understand how this place was founded? I'm just asking here. 
Less than a year later, Caesar was murdered by a group of his enemies led by the Republican nobles Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius. Consul Mark Antony and Caesar's great-nephew and adopted heir, Octavian, joined forces to crush Brutus and Cassius and divided power in Rome with ex-consul Lepidus in what was known as the Second Triumvirate. With Octavian leading the western provinces, Antony the East, and Lepidus Africa, tensions developed by 36 BC and the Triumvirate soon dissolved. In 31 BC, Octavian triumphed over the forces of Antony and Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, also rumored to be the one-time lover of Julius Caesar, in the Battle of Actium. In the wake of this devastating defeat, Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. By 29 BC, Octavian was the sole leader of Rome and all its provinces. To avoid meeting Caesar's fate, he made sure to make his position as absolute ruler acceptable to the public by apparently restoring the political institutions of the Roman Republic, while in reality retaining all real power for himself. In 27 BC, Octavian assumed the title of Augustus, becoming the first emperor of Rome. You know, there's one thing striking about this, Jason, when it started back all the way with Pompeii and you went through Spartacus. um, It's very telling when we see the same stories, these portions of Roman history told over and over again in Hollywood. It almost gets to the point where the Hollywood movies become the actual history everyone's familiar with. And I would suggest that maybe one of the oldest ones is the idea of Spartacus leading the revolt against um, established Rome as because he didn't want to be a slave anymore. But uh, again, we know so much about this time period. Who hasn't heard the story of Queen Cleopatra and all these other things? But everything prior to this is obscured. And I would suggest there's a reason for that. I would suggest that we're looking at backstories and personages that were fabricated to fit a narrative moving forward. Um, What the actual true history is, I don't think we'll ever know. That's the problem. A lot of this seems convenient. It seems like a lot of it was just put in place to assist the wealthy people in charge, kind of like we see going on today. Well, you know, the Vatican becomes basically owner of most of the known world at one point, or at least at odds with other people who are struggling to take control of places, even putting out papal bulls saying, we own everything, and even the things we haven't quite taken over yet, those belong to us too. This is covered in the the novel by Clavel Shogun, uh, where the, the pilot is trying to tell the Shogun of Japan, there's this guy named the Pope, who basically owns the whole world, and by the way, he owns Japan too because of this papal bull. And I would point everyone to go, look, that papal bull is still in force today. For my money, it almost appears like the center of power that is the Vatican created so much of this backstory that we can't make heads nor tails out of it anymore. And the problem is, is so many people are familiar with Julius Caesar and the movie Spartacus that they'll argue all day long that it's not possible that this historical account is not true in some way, shape, or form, even reaching into Egypt with Antony, Caesar, and Cleopatra. But for my money, I think it's all a backstory. Um, It seems like we should have a much better account of how this all came to be and the truth of it is, is the, the picture we have doesn't really start to come together till we get close to the year zero, within 100 years of the supposed year zero. That's where I'm coming from, man. Right. And of course, after year zero is when we start seeing the building of the Catholic Church for real. So Augustus rule restored morale in Rome after a century of discord and corruption and ushered in the famous Pax Romana, two full centuries of peace and prosperity. He instituted various social reforms, won numerous military victories, and allowed Roman literature, art, architecture, and religion to flourish. Augustus ruled for 56 years, supported by his great army and by a growing cult of devotion to the emperor. When he died, the Senate elevated Augustus to the status of a god, beginning a long-running tradition of deification for popular emperors. Augustus' dynasty, including the unpopular Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD, the bloodthirsty and unstable Caligula from 37 to 41, and Claudius, 41 to 54, who was best remembered for his army's conquest of Britain. The line ended with Nero, 54 to 68, whose excesses drained the Roman treasury and led to his downfall and eventual suicide. Four emperors took the throne in the tumultuous year after Nero's death, the fourth, Vespasian, from 69 to 79, and his successors, Titus and Domitian, were known as the Flavians. They attempted to temper the excesses of the Roman court, 
restore Senate authority, and promote public welfare. Titus, from 79 to 81, earned his people's devotion with his handling of recovery efforts after the infamous eruption of Vesuvius, which destroyed the towns of Herculaneum and Pompeii. The reign of Nerva, 96 to 98, who was selected by the Senate to succeed Domitian, began another golden age in Roman history, during which four emperors, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, took the throne peacefully, succeeding one another by adoption as opposed to hereditary succession. Trajan, from 98 to 117, expanded Rome's borders to the greatest extent in history with victories over the kingdoms of Dacia, which is now northwestern Romania, and Parthia. His successor Hadrian, from 117 to 138, solidified the emperor's frontiers and continued his predecessor's work of establishing internal stability and instituting administrative reforms. Under Antoninus Pius, 138 to 161, Rome continued in peace and prosperity, but the reign of Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180, was dominated by conflict, including war against Parthia and Armenia and the invasion of Germanic tribes from the north. When Marcus fell ill and died near the battlefield at Vindobono, which is Vienna, he broke with the tradition of non-hereditary succession and named his 19-year-old son Commodus as his successor, which is, I believe, the story of Gladiator with Russell Crowe. Well, I'm going to say a few things on this bullet point, some of which people will probably be okay with, and other things I'm about to say people will probably go, what the hell? Um, but I'm not going to make any apology here because I've looked at these things and um, – my point of view is what it is at this point. First of all, we've got to realize that Augustus was basically one of the heirs or below the reign of Julius Caesar. Julius gave his name to the month July, whereas Augustus is August. So we can see the encoding, which is the idea of the sun, because a month or a year is always defined by the sun. So we see the encoding that's going on here. But when we get up to Pompeii, I'm going to call poppycock. I'm going to call false flag. I'm going to call staged event. Um, there have been a number of us that have looked at Pompeii. I think Jungle Surfer may be one, uh, where at one point they're taking these supposed bodies left over from the supposed tragedy, um, and there's no bones in any of them. And what they're stating is, is we don't know how the people back in the day, the archaeologists back in the day made these things, um, but there's no bones in them. I think that kind of got people questioning the authenticity of Pompeii, because I recently saw a thing on TV where now they've got one where the head is partly peeled back so you can see a skull that's been placed in it. This is just more fear porn, uh, Pompeii, in my view, and I think anyone that digs in will find problem after problem with the idea of Pompeii as being just basically false history. Um, but if we push up to Hadrian, uh, there's a portion of Hadrian's supposed rule that everyone's familiar with, and that would be Hadrian's Wall. Now, when I was a kid in school, what we were told about Hadrian's Wall was that it was a bit like the Great Wall of China being built to hold out all these barbarians who they couldn't conquer. I invite anyone to go look at Hadrian's Wall. That damn wall wouldn't hold out a sick goat. Um, whatever that wall was put there for, it was not for military anything. Maybe it was a border. Who knows what it was for? But they have since changed the narrative now, and they're beginning to back off the idea that Hadrian's Wall was built to hold these barbarians. Even recently, a Rick Steves episode um, covering Europe, he his narrative was beginning to march away from this. So these are clear signs, in my view, that what we're looking at is just a mishmash of historical nonsense. And even, you know, I hate to say this much, but when we get up to Vindabona, that's the family name of the guy who, who runs America's Funniest Home Videos, to put a fine point on the Hollywood overlay here. But then you close out with Commodus here, which is clearly the tale that was told us in the Russell, Russell Crowe movie Gladiator. Um, and if you go look at the statuary that's supposedly uh, depicting Commodus, he is wearing the Cleonian lion skin and holding the club. That is, of course, Hercules, and Hercules is nothing more than the sun in the sign of Leo. Anyhow, Jason, I said a lot of things there that people will probably have problems with, but I make no apology. Things like Pompeii I've looked at carefully, things like Hadrian's Wall I've looked at carefully, and they're both nonsensical from the original accounts that we received. Well, and that, that's very much a, a possibility because we are seeing inconsistencies in the historical record through all these hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't know what really went on. That's the bottom line since we're at the top of the hour here. 
people who were, were recording these things usually came about far afterwards. There are some people attributed as Roman historians of the time, but even some of the things they're discussing were from hundreds of years earlier, so how would they know exactly? For my money, I would say that we really just can't be sure. Well, there's nothing new under the sun here, and that is both a pun and a factual statement. When you see things like Commodus um, or Marcus Aurelius being depicted in the statuary, wearing the Cleonian lion skin, holding the club, you're flat out looking at the sun in the sign of Leo, the sun sign. Actually, Leo is a sun sign. Um, when you go back to Pompeii, in my view, what it illustrates is in the same way we're still collecting false news events, um, like the way 9-11 was covered, or any number of these kind of fear porn events in the modern age. They're not what they're being reported as. We can go all the way back to the story of Pompeii, and we're looking at a version of the same thing. And then by the time we get to things like Hadrian's Wall, I mean, come on, anyone could go look at that, and it, it barely would have caged a goat. And people will say things like, "Well, before you know, before so much time went by, it was taught." No, go look at the historical account of Hadrian's Wall, and you tell me if that was holding any barbarians out, because that was the narrative we were given when I was in junior high school. But Jason, we're going to cover so much in the second hour. Um, that I would urge people that have an interest in how the hell the Vatican came to be and what the heck ancient Rome was to tune in and check it out. But anyhow, I'm going to reiterate here real quickly. The next episode, episode 93, is going to be driven by the sub subscribers of Crow777radio.com submitting their questions as we have done in, I think, two or three past episodes now. Again, for all the subscribers, under this episode, when you listen, logged in at Crow777radio.com, submit Make your questions there, and I will collect them, and that will drive the next episode. Jason, do you have anything to add before I wrap up here? Well, the second hour, we're going to go into how the Empire of Rome became the Christian Church, and more specifically, the Catholic Church, because there were a lot of Christian sects that were floating around in the beginning of the AD era. And the reason why we went through all this history is to show the parallels of what was going on then to what is going on now and how there are just inconsistencies all over the place. It may be a little dry for some, but I think it's important. And a lot of people don't even look at this stuff anymore. So it's interesting to take a look at, especially on the heels of our astrotheology episode and see what comparisons we can draw from that. Plus all the stuff that's going on from then compared to now and how the Catholic Church actually came about to the best that we can figure it out. We're all aware of the influence that the Vatican has had over so much of the world in the modern age. And ancient Rome, or what we call ancient Rome, is the predecessor of that. We tried to go in and make parallels to show that the Vatican is basically part and parcel the same thing as ancient Rome was. It's not so cut and dry and not so easy to do, but when you begin to show things like the first basilica or whatever it would be called that was for St. Peter in Vatican, took the doors off the Senate building of ancient Rome and then set up shop at basically 32 AD when in fact Constantine, by the timeline we're handed, didn't even make Christianity the religion of the realm until two, three hundred years later, you begin to see the obscuring of this timeline. In my view, my best guess is, is that most of what we know of ancient Rome is a backstory put together by the Vatican. That's the way I feel about it. The problem is, is I can't demonstrate it um, as convincingly as I'd like to. But anyone who wants to go in and start looking at the dates and even try to figure out how the place started or when it ended is going to find a litany of dates that just become nonsensical at some point. Anyhow, Jason, anything else? Join us for hour two, where we're really going to tear into the Catholic Church, tied in with the Freemasons and everything else that the Vatican has done. All right, that brings hour one to a close for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast, episode 92. And again, subscribers, go under this episode on Crow777radio.com and submit your questions and topics for the next episode, which will be 73. There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.